Hi, this is Steve from Task. Uh, today I'm talking to Tyler. Uh, Tyler's the ecosystem evangelist at the Stellar Development Foundation. And we're going to be discussing NFTs, why they're interesting. Uh, we're going to get into smart contracts and decentralized networks. And again, you know, why are decentralized networks so important? And, um, and then looking at Stellar and how Stellar are going to be bringing smart contracts into the market in a fast, low-cost way. Um, it's a pretty techy conversation and apologies about my mic it's uh, not so clear but Tyler is nice and clear and that's the important bit so uh, please enjoy this conversation with Tyler Tyler welcome to the task po uh, task podcast great to have you here yeah thanks so much for having me excited to excited to chat we're going to delve into the world of NFTs, which I know you're very passionate about. Um, mm -hmm. it, the NFT world is is hilarious. It's as as, as as if we were on the cusp of a dot com boom, where everyone is going crazy, where you know, people are purchasing a couple of pixels for millions and millions of dollars. If you cut through all that hype. Could you get down to the essence of why someone should really care about an NFT, what it is? What, why would my mum be interested in what an NFT is and the way in which it's going to change people's lives for the better? That is an interesting question. Um, and I think depending on which, which mum you ask, you might get a different answer. Um, and I think ultimately the thing that interests me is less the use case, the actual... Uh, items that are kind of the the use case of an NFT, but at the end of the day, like an NFT is just a non fungible token. It's some asset, some value store um, that can't be split up, and that's really not super interesting um, on its own. Uh, it's really how you how you start to use that, and the way that people are using that is through um, this verifiable certification. It's, it's verifiable that this thing is owned by you. And so long as you have this stamp, this fingerprint of ownership, um, there's that, that clout element. And it, it's so much of the, the psychology that's playing into this when it comes to the use case in selling art. Um, but this concept of ownership through uh, digital certification isn't super new, but having that accessible, it's like, um, you know, copyright laws or uh, the ideas of if I've, if I've invented this thing and I have a stamp or I have an approval or somebody has said so, uh, then I, I can have some, some legal recourse or even just verifiability that I do in fact own this thing. And then, and then you can kind of trickle out the use cases from there for, for art. It might be because I own this thing, that means you don't. And if you want it, you have to get it from me, which means you have to pay for it or transact in some way to maintain or, or acquire ownership of that thing. Um, and that's the part that's interesting is once you've kind of decentralized ownership away from just trademark laws and moved it into the space of anybody can kind of prove ownership over something um, you're just taking over what's already been happening with fungible tokens, with with um, value transfer, as you know, in fiat currencies or um, digital currencies, could where you, something can be split. Could Could I ask you that? Just bearing in mind, a lot of the task podcast listeners are non-technical. Could you spell out what what is what do we mean by non-fungible? And sure. 
you know, how, how, you know, why is it that that allows protection of something like art? Yeah. So, uh, the, a fungible token and a non-fungible token. Um, and that simply means that one can be split and one cannot. So if you have a dollar that can be split into a uh, hundred pennies, right? Um, but once you get down to sort of that base asset that can't be split anymore, then you've got something that's uh, all its own. The, the, the thing with a penny is you've got lots and lots and lots of pennies. So it's not really unique. So it's something that's unsplittable, but also unique in the sense that there's only the one of this thing out there and that it can't be divided. So it's the idea of uh, uniqueness, um, but also a, a uniqueness that can't be uh, replicated. So you may have a penny, can't be split anymore, but a penny's not unique. It would be if there was only one penny in the world. Um, and you might get some of those things where, you know, there was some weird manufacturing issue and the penny was stamped and it gives it some unique attribute that then becomes this sort of, ooh, I want that because it's extremely rare. Um, but once you start to move away from the actual explained mechanics, like if I pick up a rock, that's the only rock like that rock in the whole wide world, right? Um, but that doesn't mean it's valuable necessarily. Uh, no. You have to sort of get someone else to want that thing. Um, and so there's, there's interesting economics and psychology in play of trying to get someone to want that thing. So you've got the mechanics that are in play, but then also the, the desirability. And that's where the art piece kind of comes in is I've got art and I would like to sell it, but if this art is replicatable or it's not unique or it's not um, special in some way, why is it expensive? Why would I spend more money on this thing? Um, there's desirability within human nature to want something that's rare uh, that other people want. So when you've got an artist creating art that lots of people want, it, can, it, it goes for a higher price if there's only one of that thing. But how do you prove that there's only one of that thing, particularly if it's sold? So I guess the ultimate non-fungible for an artist is just, I painted it on a piece of canvas. That's what I painted. And if you want this piece, you grab this, this NFT uh, canvas and you have it. Um, but you have to be really careful with it because you might break it uh, when you're hanging it up in your house or it might get stolen. Or um, if you want to sell it to someone, you're going to have to go to an auction and there's fees involved. And it's, it's just a very manual process. So is there a way that we can move these attributes of rare art to a digital format where you can take that same thing and sell it on your computer and it still be rare because I could take that image and just copy it and I have it on my desktop and you have yours on your desktop and now it's not rare anymore. Why are you going to sell this thing for any more than, you know, 50 cents? How can you, how can you fetch millions of dollars for digital artwork? And that's where the blockchain piece comes in is you can verifiably prove rarity of an item by saying that it can't be split anymore. And so long as you own this particular piece that was minted or issued or created by this artist, if you, so long as you're acquiring that token, that thing, you own that piece in the same way that you would own the original canvas that he painted on. Um, and there are lots of questions. There's lots of technical aspects that make that still a bit difficult. And that's kind of why we are in the wild west is it's actually yeah. landing on consensus or agreement on how these things are to be done at scale <clears throat> so that there aren't a hundred different ways that these things are happening and stored and verified. Um, 
Right now, a lot of it is kind of interface specific. So you have to go to a specific application to create tokens or to view tokens or to view these NFTs or to trade those NFTs. That's not super interesting to me. I don't want something like, I don't want something to only be like you basically, the way it works now is it's kind of you acquire something, but it's in a building. Yeah. Uh, all kind of locked away, this Ethereum building. And the only way you or anybody else can see it or access it is by looking through a, a window. And that window might be rareable. It might be open sea. And um, you can look at what you have in the blockchain. But if you wanted to get it out, you're going to have to access it through one of these windows. Um, and so it's still kind of a little bit of a closed box that, yeah, that while there are some advantages still because it's digital, um, it's not it's not very decentralized because if any of those systems have licensing issues or server issues or, um, I mean, we're still in the very early stages of are these things actually legally defensible? Um, there's all kinds of issues that can crop up that are interface issues. And all of a sudden that shade gets pulled on that window and that thing you spent money on is no longer accessible. It's still there in the building, in, in the blockchain, but your access to it or ability to move it um, or do something with it becomes very much limited, right? Because if I wanna sell this thing, but sure you could sell it, but nobody wants it if they can't view it, if they can't access it. And so you've got, again, this like, would somebody buy a painting if like, yes, you have the painting, yes, you can buy it, but you'll never be able to see it. You'll never be able to touch it. You definitely can't hang it in your own house. Um, if those things are ever true, the art really loses its value. Access to the art is just as important as ownership of the art. Um, and that's something that we're kind of handling the ownership piece with the blockchain. Um, but the access piece, I think we still really have, have work to do to figure out how to emulate some of that, again, human psychology of what is desirable about art and what actually gives it value. How is value determined? I mean, at the end of the day, it's very simple value of something is just what someone else is willing to pay for it. And that could just be two people. Yeah. It could be millions of people, but there still has to be something there that's desirable. Um, What's the something way that is cool about digital, just to, to carry on a little bit on that, what, something that's neat about digital is your access is, is opened up to a whole like global club, a global audience, right? If I, if I collected baseball cards as a kid, um, uh, you know, I, hopefully my neighbor friends are interested in baseball cards or, you know, my friends at school. Cause that's, that's the access that I have is the people that are around me. So I kind of have to be interested in what other people within my, you know, distance, I can walk radius. That's my interest group. Um, those are the people that I can trade with. Um, but once you open up to a digital global economy or global scale, you can now interact with anyone in the world. You can join groups where nobody in your town cares at all about whatever you're collecting and still have a marketplace and still have the ability to, to buy and sell and collect and display and um, have a community around that where before you really didn't, um, you'd have to go to art shows and, and really travel. And some of, you know, some of that is the, the allure of, of art collectors is that it is more part of the experience is that you have to travel and physically move to locations. And it'll be interesting to see how we emulate some of those, aspects in in the digital nature where things are easier but because it's easier values decreased what what's the path of of uh decentralization getting rid of these buildings that you you talk of looking through the window what what are the what what's the route to to changing that 
I don't know. Um, some of it is just open sourcing access or open sourcing interfaces that gain access to these things. But I would say, so in the same way that we have decentralized backends for how we verify and buy and sell and trade these things, and there's decentralization there where there's no one party that says I'm responsible for displaying this image or, or for transferring this value. Um, we need that same sort of decentralization in how websites are generated or how um, applications um, that there's not, that somehow we, we get away from ownership uh, and liability in there being a single point of some person could turn this thing on or off in, in it being displayed and it uh, eventually making it to the pixels that light up on a, on a phone or on a browser. There has to be decentralization in that because as long as that's a centralized party, those things, there are switches that can be turned on and off. And that's part of the beauty of the blockchain is sure you can shut down my node, but you can't shut down the whole world's nodes, yeah. hopefully. Um, because you have decentralization in liability, you've got decentralization in um, just the governance of these things and the different countries that they're operating in. You need that same sort of access and flexibility in the interfaces and the display mechanics of these NFTs. Um, and so, yeah, some of that is just open sourcing code for these things. But I think even more than that, your NFTs almost become tied to display mechanics, um, where how this thing is displayed, the JavaScript and HTML and CSS that render um, whatever it is you own, that that also is, is at some level on the blockchain, whether that's hosting websites on IPFS, um, as well as the actual images themselves, um, open source, decentralized um, applications and um, browsers, things like that are going to become important. Um, I don't know. It'll, it'll be very interesting to see because there's so many angles that you have to approach this at and consider when, when, when you're minting art and displaying it. There's lots of actual uh, copyright laws. You can't just grab someone's art and, and turn it into an NFT and make money off of it. If you didn't make it, you can't sell it. There's laws around that. Um, and just because you can do something doesn't mean it's not illegal. So a, a question on um, thinking about the music industry, moving away from art, but thinking, well, still art, but let's go into the world of music. If we could replay what happened with peer-to-peer -peer file sharing that came out and how that change the music industry if at the time nfts had been around and smart contracts could you could you perhaps go into what that history lesson would look like differently because you'd have had a combination of file sharing where anyone could access any music but now it would be enveloped in the world of nfts with smart contracts because that that i think is a very tangible use case of what would the world look, look like now had that happened at the time? I'm not sure because the thing that's, that's still kind of the big question mark in my mind is when it comes to music, when it comes to images, that's what people think they're getting. Um, that's what, like, I want to listen to the music. I want to look at the image. Um, but those are assets that are infinitely copyable. There's, there's nothing in an image that says, I can't just take this 
without permission, without paying for it, the piracy issues don't go away because of blockchain. Mm-hmm. What what becomes easier is the rec- the legal recourse of saying, look at the blockchain. You never purchased this. So yes, you you have it on your hard drive, but you did not purchase it. But it doesn't it doesn't stop people from copying music or copying yeah. images. It just you can point and say, well, you have it, but where's the proof that you bought it? Um, that piece I think would be interesting. And I think that might have changed some of the legal conversations and even some of the copyright conversations that have happened since then and the legal recourse that artists have when their art is um, is um, copied illegally or pirated. That, that piece is interesting, but I think that still remains to be seen. I, I'm not aware of any court cases where an NFT has been brought up and said, this person has this art, but they never purchased it. So some of that still remains to be seen how that will shake out in a court case where somebody has acquired art, but never paid for it. Will we start to see more um, cases brought that say, I would, I would like recompense for the fact that this has been used illegally because they never paid for it. Um, but the only way to really prove that again is to say, is to somehow tie that asset to a smart contract in such a way that the only way to acquire that asset is is through the smart contract and anybody who has it that isn't able to prove that they were somewhere in that chain of ownership, um, that there's legal recourse for that. That piece is interesting, but I don't know, I don't know how that will fly. I'm not a lawyer, so I do not know what that's going to look like, but that's kind of the next evolution because when you purchase an NFT, when you purchase whatever that NFT is connected to, like, yes, you want the image, you want the music, you want whatever the asset is, but that's not really what you're getting. You're getting a certificate. You're putting yourself in the chain of ownership that said, I am proving that I have the right to actually have this thing, to, to view this, not even not to view, but to own this piece. I, I do own this. I paid for it. Here's the proof on the blockchain that this is what happened. I did it the right way in the same way that, you know, you might get a receipt, but instead of it being a paper receipt that hopefully you kept around to prove that you didn't pirate something, um, you have it on the blockchain where it's immutable and hypothetically eternal, uh, where you can, any, any issue that crops up in the future, you can point to that and say, no, no, no. I can, as long as I can prove that I own this address and this is me, I did in fact purchase this. And that's where that becomes interesting. And that's, that's the legal side of things. There's a whole other world that's just, the, the sort of Patreon model where it's just, I just want to support this artist and here's a great way to do that. But instead of me just buying something that everyone else is buying, I get the pro tier that says, um, I, I put myself on the blockchain. I, you know, look at me. It's, it's kind of like the Kickstarter things where they put you into the, the read me or something, or they, they stamp your name on some piece of something like, yes, I'm part of this. I'm part of this community. I'm an owner of that. That's a very different side of things, but it's also incredibly interesting, almost more on the retail side where it's just a you know lower dollar, but higher volume supporters of something where it's not so much, I'm the only owner of something, but that I'm a supporter of this thing. And here's proof. I have the clout, the stamp, the badge that proves I'm, I'm part of this club and I, I got it the right way. That's interesting as well. Then I think for creators, particularly in this new digital creator economy where you've got Instagram and influencers and Twitch streamers and stuff like that. There's some really interesting Patreon potential, mm-hmm. not necessarily just in the NFT space, but I don't know if you're familiar with Top Shot, NBA Top Shot. 
where NBA fans can hold can can purchase little snippets of video from yeah. from NBA games. That's super interesting. I'd love to see that sort of thing played out for Twitch streamers too, where instead of just getting emotes and, you know, a different color name in the chat, you actually own little, little snippets, little pieces of, you know, top moments in the game that you were watching. That'd be super cool, but it's not, it, it only holds value in the community. You're probably not going to go and sell that thing necessarily, but you own it. The point is I'm a fan of this person and I support them. And here's proof in my, my collection of top moments. That's kind of neat. With the, uh, back on the music, I suppose, um, I like the concepts around NFTs and smart contracts where, for example, an artist can sell their wares and as the product is sold again and again, I mean, this, this is more the art world, but as the product sold again and again, um, you're always getting a, uh, royalty that comes through. And I, yep. I suppose with the music, I wonder if there would have been an opportunity to, uh, if you think about the artists who complain about Spotify and how Spotify came through, but was it good for the musicians? And the answer seems to be no. Whether with blockchain and NFTs, there was another model that could have happened where musicians would have been enriched, we'd have more music, um, it would be a more viable way of making money as I suppose now you just got to go on tour. But yeah, I, I, it just interests me because it's a way of, of monetization where the artist is the winner and distribution is, is decentralized and not controlled by any one entity. Yeah, for sure. That's super interesting. Just the smart contractability of, of the selling of things. Um, again, it's not really tied to even NFTs. You could do these things without NFTs. I, I, you know, at least it doesn't have to be the NFT is the thing. It's really the contract and how something is sold. But until we have some clarity or until someone kind of pursues that route through legal recourse, um, it kind of remains to be seen whether or not that that would fly. Um, seems like it should. Um, but because because the music... Because the music... Um, isn't the thing you're purchasing necessarily. Um, and all of these things have established mechanics for how things are sold. And it's always platform specific through Spotify or YouTube or Twitch. Um, there kind of has to be partnerships and conversations with their terms of service and how they acquire and sell art. And um, the thing that's, again, more interesting is not going traditional routes, you know, and finding, finding ways to engage your audience um, through this, the selling of things and finding ways like new economic models where, cause the big problem you have as an artist is discoverability. I need people to find my work. So you need a platform at some level where people are discovering new music or new art or new streamers, whatever it might be, new creators. Um, and that's, that's that access, that platform is what all these companies use as leverage to give a bad deal to the artists because, well, I have a choice between making a little or making nothing. So I'd rather at least make a little and maybe on the off chance, maybe one day I'll have a community large enough where I can move off this platform. But that's rarely the case. Yeah. I think once you start to introduce economic models, which are smart contracted, you give some of that power back to the artist um, where there becomes that incentive for new platforms to come up that are very focused on 
um, giving a good deal to the artists, but it's given in such a way that can't be, there's no rug pulling uh, later on. Uh, it's all smart contracted. This is how your music will be sold. There's nothing we can do. It's not controlled by us. We're just interface. And then you've got those three different buckets, kind of the artist making art, the interface, um, utilizing smart contracts. And then the smart contracts are that sort of contracted uh, where, where, where it used to be the smart contract was the, was the provider in their terms of service, but they could change their terms of service. Yeah. Now you kind of separate out that liability. You separate out that contract, those terms of service out to the smart contract. And so those three entities can kind of operate together where um, there can't be a lot of, there can't be any, unless it's built into the smart contract, there can't be any um, uh, unpleasant surprises for, for the creators. And you have these agreements that are in place that would work a little bit better for, for the artists. And I think, I do think that's where things are going to go. I, I really hope so. Um, where platforms, artists, platforms, you know, built by artists for artists pop up, they're utilizing smart contracts so that they don't really have to focus on the platform. They can just build art. And then there can be another group that builds smart contracts. Um, and then those things are connected through some sort of interface, but these groups are, are growing and getting larger where they, they're just run by community members and there's some developers in there that can build stuff, but nobody has to trust the developer because it's built into smart contracts. Um, and so long as those are good, the, the platform just works. And instead of having to deal with these third-party audience platforms, that kind of just fades into the background. It's an interface, sure, but it's not really controlled or owned or tweaked by anybody. And now it's all about artists and their fan base. That's interesting. That'll be that'll be cool to see how that grows because of the capabilities that we have in blockchain. And we've always had these capabilities. It's just that they've always been centralized. The programming doesn't change. It's just your ability to change that programming whenever the heck you want that changes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to just go into that, explain why that is for people listening? So when you have a smart contract, uh, like at the end of the day, it's just programming, right? It's five plus five equals 10. And, or maybe there's a percentage. A good example would be a percentage. Let's say when I launch something, I get 2% share of whatever, whatever you release. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get 98% of whatever I sell. That's awesome. Uh, but let's say in 10 years, you're, you're a big artist and I need more money uh, because it's centralized, the code base that has that percentage built in, I'm going to, I'm going to make some changes and my terms of service lets me and your platform's so big and everybody's on my platform. I'm going to change that percentage to let's say 15% is what I get. And so all of a sudden you get a big pay cut. Um, I'm allowed to do it because the code base is centralized. It's my platform. It's my audience, my people. If you want to leave, go ahead, leave. I don't care. Uh, but you're not going to leave because your platform is here and all your people are here and everybody's used to using it. This is, this is the social media network. You can't just go and find another one because everybody's here listening to other artists and looking at other people's art. They don't want to leave. And so I have that leverage because I have a network of people and this is the platform. I can make these changes. When you decentralize that, when you turn it into a smart contract, all of a sudden that code that runs that percentage is put away into a network of other computers that are all running uh, separate from my logic, separate from my platform. 
and I can't change it because I don't have backdoor keys to update it. So I would somehow have to go to each service that's running and say, hey, I would like to increase my percentage. You're not going to get anything, but I would like to change the percentage. Like that's not going to happen. That's that's why these things are really powerful because you remove that um, backdoor access or the, you remove the power of changing things willy-nilly uh, away from the platform out into a smart contracted world where nobody like there are no th the third parties sort of at play running the smart contract, running the percentage logic in this case, don't have anything to gain by changing it. And even if one did, the other 10 don't. And so there's, there's no one entity that has the control to make those changes. Everyone would have to agree. And particularly if those smart contracts are run by artists or run by a network that has maybe a bigger stake in ensuring that you don't change things. Um, and me as a platform creator, if, if I'm trying to compete with something like Spotify as a, as a platform, you know, creating something new, I'm probably going to put that into my pitch, right? Like, how am I going to compete with, with Spotify? If I'm a centralized platform, you, yeah. you're, uh, you're going to have a hard time. But if one of your main pitches is I, not only will I promise not to like, okay, who cares about a promise, but I, I actually can't because of the logic of the way that I've built this thing, I'm, I'm actually unable to change it. So not only won't I, I promise, uh, I actually can't because of the way that it's put, that's, that's this decentralized finance, this DeFi idea is that I've put my logic, my business logic of how my business is run, how transactions are made, how this royalties benefits works. I've put that into programming just like I would in a centralized platform, but rather than running it on my computers, I'm gonna have other computers all run it. And as they run it, uh, I can't go in and change it arbitrarily. It's, it's put into the blockchain. It's put into these machines that would have to somehow, they would have to collude with each other to make changes. Um, and the more computers you add to the system, the more uh, unlikely that becomes. And even just by removing it from yourself, you remove that liability. Um, but then by adding it to multiple third parties, it becomes that guarantee that this thing that I appreciate, that I that seems too good to be true, um, actually is true because it can't be changed. Um, so if it works, it will always work this way, or at least it will always work according to the contracted programmed logic. Um, and then also what becomes really interesting is those are opened and accessible to people who don't want to start businesses or don't want to start companies. They just want to create a smart contract and sell something. These smart contracts are pretty easy to write. Um, the complex logic often is just spinning up servers, maintaining servers, ensuring that the code runs correctly. Um, but you can create a contract that does royalty payments relatively easily. And once you create it, you can put any interface you want on top of it. At that point, it's just API calls. It's just calling the machine saying, hey, I would like to do this thing with this asset, whether that's uh, sell it or create an auction for it, whatever it might be. And then you can put any interface you want on top of it. So it kind of becomes interface agnostic. So anybody can create their own Spotify using these contracts. Um, and me as, a, as like, okay, well, what's the benefit for me? Well, I've put in a 5% uh, repayment to me. So anytime it sells. And so at that point, my business model becomes if I want to make money, I need to get lots and lots and lots of people using this and have lots of different interfaces and use the same sort of platform for music and streaming and artwork. 
and just get tons of people using a protocol, a platform that pays me, you know, 5% or whatever it is as part of the contract that can never change that 5% or maybe my contract, I've set it to change, but it's all open. Anyone can see it and see what the plan is for the future. And that's where we see all of these D5 projects working so well is because that liability of relying on some human to not change their mind goes away. A computer, you ask it what one plus one is, it's always going to be two. You ask a human what that is, well, it depends, you know, things are different now. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, okay, you know, I don't, I, I really, unfortunately right now, we kind of have to rely on that. And that's where you get these centralized monolith uh, enterprises that control access but I don't think we need that anymore when you have smart contract logic. And that's where the appeal is going to come from because right now it's just impossible to compete if you're a centralized platform saying, I'm going to do lower fees. Okay, great. But are you actually, or when you grow, are you going to change just like Spotify does uh, or, or YouTube or whatever it might be? Are you going to change? Because if you're centralized, you can't. If you're decentralized, you're, you're beholden to the contract that you wrote. Um, what, just and that to, contract is is in the blockchain. It's it's you can't change that. It's one plus one. When when you when you look at various smart contract um, operations or where where do you get your buzz at the moment when you're looking? What what is inspiring you in terms of the projects out there? Where you look at that and you go, wow, that's amazing, and people need to hear about this. I'm going to be honest. Not much. Oh, really? uh, I think, I think we're just on the cusp. Yeah. Um, so, so kind of when like, I, I liken it a bit to when the iPhone came out and all these apps were, you know, the app store came out and everybody was building apps yeah. and they were all designed like their real world counterparts, right? You had a calendar and it had like staples on yeah. the phone. You're like, okay. Uh, I feel like we're in that stage where we're just replicating things that already exist in the physical realm and, and, and pulling them in, like they still have the staples in the digital format. And that's not exciting to me. I want something that's better because it's digital, not just replicated. I mean, faster, cheaper, yay, great. But I think there's some downsides to that where there, there's some, particularly in the art world, like I was mentioning, part of the appeal is that you have to travel and these things, like you had to take an adventure to acquire some of these things. And I think you see this emulated in video games sometimes where games aren't easy and the games that people really dive into are challenging. Um, when you make everything cheap and fast, where, that's not valuable. Um, and so we have to find ways to replicate what actually gives things value when it comes to things like art. We have to find ways to replicate that. And right now I just, I feel like we got staple marks in our apps and we need to be figuring out because this thing is digital, what, what can we provide? What can we... Um, offer to people that literally is not possible in a, in a physical format, right? Our calendars now, like there's nothing about that calendar that, that is like, oh, I could, I could, I could actually do this on a paper calendar. Uh, no, you probably couldn't uh, unless, you know, somehow your paper calendar is tied to your phone. It gives you notifications. It buzzes in your pocket and, you know, has links to the video that you're supposed to join and you can sync up with other people's calendars instantly and see when, a, like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do with calendars now that, that you definitely couldn't do on a paper calendar. We need to start thinking that way when we look at artwork and, and transfer of value outside of just like fiat currencies. Um, we need to start thinking what is, what is our digital calendar here? What, what can we do because this is digital that we, we haven't even like, 
it was, we weren't even in the realm of being able to think about these things when it was all physically limited to how far my feet could walk in a day. Um, we need to start thinking way outside of the way that things have been done and start thinking, what could we do now because this thing is digital, because of the speed and efficiencies which we've achieved? What new, cool, interesting economic models can we provide that just absolutely are not possible without smart contracts? Um, what could people trust us to do now because it's decentralized that they would never in a million years trust a centralized service to do? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is brand new blue ocean stuff where you wouldn't in a million years ask someone to do something if it was centralized and nobody would like, it was like, oh my goodness, uh, how could anyone trust you to do that? But when something's decentralized, when something um, has the right uh, governance structures in place, when there's that, that multiple machines with uh, varying incentives uh, or co contradictory incentives that uh, disallow, disincentivize collusion, um, now there's a whole new world of economic opportunity that's opened up where you can provide services and um, interest and access that you never could have before. So, um, you know, it's cool. You can buy digital art online. That's neat. But that to me is like, you got the, you got the staples in your calendar on your digital, like, let's, let's do something more interesting. Let's really start to, to push the envelope here on, on what could be possible and, and think a little bit wider than just replicating. I'm thinking and, marriages. And innovating. <laughs> start with marriages and, um, and take all that cash away from those lawyers that exploit people's um, relationship issues, allow people to create a smart contract before they enter marriage, which makes it all really easy if, if that contract needs to be. There you married. go. <laughs> this way. There's one good application. I've seen something the other day that was like uh, NFT rings or something like that, where people put their their vows on oh, the yeah. or something. It's kind yeah, of funny. yeah, yeah. Wait, uh, just but yeah, like stuff that seems Sorry. weird now. That's that's how we start getting towards innovation. Is somebody puts something out there and everybody else is like, "This is I don't understand this. Why does this button not look like a physical button?" Um, then ten years later, you see a button that's a real physical gradient animated button. You're like, "What?" This, well, is so, this is not helpful. You, you remember the debate when Amazon came out selling books and everyone like, well, you know, selling books on the internet, we can deal with that, but um, uh, you're never going to sell anything else, you know, it, it, and it, the debate raged on and, and see where we've come to now. And there's, there's probably some similarities there in people's mental. hundred percent. Yeah. Whenever somebody's saying this doesn't really work, that, I mean, eh, maybe it does. Why doesn't it? Because if it's if it's just psychology, if there's something there, particularly when you have access to the whole wide world, there's probably somebody that thinks it's a good idea or at least worth pursuing. Or maybe if we tweak it in this way, like let yourself have some bad ideas. It's how you find a good one. Um, iterate, improve. You don't come up with your final idea on day one, like work on it. But if all we're doing is replicating Where's the innovation in that? There's so many blockchain projects like this would be better if it was centralized because of the back doors, because it is actually slower or more expensive, or it's not really that valuable. I mean, all the, so many of the NFT stuff with the tiebacks to IPFS where images are getting lost, people think they're buying images. And if their images aren't showing up and you're peering through the, the, the window and the shade's been pulled, how is that better than actually having a digital image that was sold on some centralized network? It's not better. Um, 
So think, think about those things. Don't, don't buy into hype. Think about the tech and the very interesting things that we can do because things are, are decentralized, because they have a blockchain. Um, because there are really interesting things we can do, but if you're not thinking about what those are and you're just buying into the hype and doing an NFT because everybody else is, uh, I don't know. I think uh, images on Instagram and Facebook are going to last longer than a lot of these NFTs. There, I said it. Yeah. Well, look, I'm just thinking we as we come towards the end of our time on the podcast, uh, I just wanted to, I suppose, open up conversation to things that you're working on, where your passions lie at the moment, you know, anything that you'd like to talk about, which is, you know, just kind of personal to you, something that you'd like to share that you think people should know about, you know, what, sure. perhaps what you're working on or what, what's really, you know, floating your boats at the moment. Yeah. So two big projects, one is Stellar Quest, which is an educational um, platform where people can learn Stellar at a technical level, as well as win badges and some XLM. Um, we're going to have a series three launching uh, either early April, maybe or late, late April, um, early May. Um, so I'm extremely excited about that. I forget, is that .com, Stellar Quest? Uh, it's it's quest.stellar.org is the best place to find information about that. We also have a Discord that uh, is a ton of fun. So be sure and join that if you're looking to get into Stellar at more of a technical level, as well as earn some badges and get a, get access to some very passionate uh, and eager new learners. Um, the other one, the other big thing I'm working on are is a smart contracting layer, um, kind of a, a layer two beside Stellar itself. Um, so this is contract composition in a decentralized network. Um, so Stellar is very fast and very cheap because it's non-Turing complete. You can't do whatever you want. You can only do a very limited set of things and you construct this contract, or you construct this, uh, this transaction manually or on your server, but in a centralized way right now. And that's, that's almost always fine um, if you have a very traditional payments remittance use case. If you wanna do something fancy though, more complex sales, atomic swaps that are anything decentralized where there isn't a centralized third party that's creating that transaction, um, you're going to need something like the Turing signing server network. Um, and that's the piece that I've been working on that I'm extremely interested and excited about because it allows you to do all of these things that I've been talking about around royalty payments and residual benefits on making making payments or really weird economic models like um, maybe an asset that nobody really can permanently own. Uh, in the sense of like a white elephant where I have an NFT, but it's always for sale. You just have to pay a little bit more. Um, so just really interesting, weird economic models because it is Turing complete and you can build any sort of contracting logic you want and then put it out into this network and it will run. And I can't, I can't take it back. It's just always going to run according to the contract. That capability is really powerful and really interesting. And I think unlocks a lot of potential. Yeah. Um, it's, that you have it's, something I want. it's just way cheaper and way faster because it's not built into Stellar. It runs alongside Stellar. Um, so you still get all the efficiencies of that very focused blockchain, but all the comp com composability, yikes, composability um, of Ethereum, but separate. So you still have this network of Turing complete machines that's running yeah. arbitrary code and generating transactions, but it runs alongside the network. Uh, can you, can you just find 
sorry, sorry to interrupt, but can you just define Turing complete? Because there'll be a lot of people listening. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I, you know, I didn't know what a minute first, just like I didn't know what fungible was. It's like some sort of weird mushroom you put on a pizza. Um, so uh, Turing complete, there was a guy named Turing something. I don't even remember the guy's name, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, see, so you know more than I do. Um, created this, this machine that would essentially perform any any logic anything that you wanted to do it would perform that thing it would do that thing using um using the algorithms of math there wasn't a lot of like pre there weren't any pre-built functions that you had to use and you could only do xyz you could do anything you wanted and so you have that logic now in uh, all these turing complete programming languages like javascript for example is a turing complete programming language uh, the stellar programming language your operations that you can use are non-turing complete um, you can only do what's what's already built into the system. And if you want to uh, build a program that will turn on your microwave in the morning, it's not going to happen. But you could use JavaScript to do that. And so if you wanted to do something complex, something that Stellar did not by default allow, um, or more complex logic around how to actually create a transaction under certain conditions, like let's just take a really wild example. I want to buy... Uh, uh, I want to buy USD. Did I, did I go mute? No, I'm good. No, you're fine. Sorry, I got some pop-ups. Uh, you wanted to buy um, USDC on the Stellar blockchain if it was raining outside. You can't do that unless you have some sort of Turing complete programming language. With, with Turing signing servers, you can do that. You could build a program, a function, a JavaScript function, that says it you know, pulls in an API from dark sky or weather underground, whatever it might be. And it says, hey, here's my location. Is it raining? If it's raining, build a transaction that buys USDC. And then that anytime that contract is run, anytime you run that function, it's gonna pull those APIs. They'll do their thing and look at your location. Uh, yep, it's raining, buy USD. Nope, it's dry as a bone. We're not buying anything today. And you can start to see, like, that's a dumb example, but there's all kinds of really interesting things you can start to do that just aren't possible without that Turing completeness, without that whatever you want to do, you can do functionality. And that's why I think Turing signing servers, that capability are so incredibly necessary and important um, to unlock that economic potential that anybody that wants to do something has that capability, whether they should or whether it makes sense or whether is irrelevant, you can do it. Um, and from that, you'll start to see this innovation that I'm talking about, where you're not limited by things we said you should do with Stellar, or here's the operations you can use. You can do whatever the heck you want. And if it works well, people will buy into it. Um, and it, it just uh, opens up that innov innovative uh, opportunity that a non-Turing complete um, language or system does not allow for. And they both have their benefits, right? You, uh, If you wanna be fast and efficient, you probably shouldn't be Turing complete. But if you want to be quick and innovative and experimental, you really, you really need to let people do whatever they want. Yeah, for, for, me, so, it's it's, for me, it's fascinating and a very interesting area because you know, for, 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 our, for the task mission of how can we disrupt economies? What are, what are the systems to get different results? Um, you know, that, that type of application, I think if you can... Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm thinking about is how to create a very simplified user interface on top so you could start to make financial de decisions based 
on certain conditions happening, which then, you know, obviously basic smart contract stuff in that it's all open for everyone to see and, and it creates high degree of trust. Um, but to create interfacing, which allows people to build whatever they want, and then you, you see what people can create. It's fascinating if you can open it up. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting, very interesting. Um, just thinking of closing out the podcast, is there any, any last yeah, bits of information you'd like to give out? Where can people connect with you? Where do you like to talk? Who, who are you looking to connect with? Sure. So for the Turing signing server stuff, just go to tss.stellar.org. Um, there's a key base working group for those that actually want to either set up Turing signing servers uh, or build contracts themselves and, and deploy those to the network. Um, that'd be a good place to go just to get information about the smart contracting stuff that I've been doing. We already mentioned the link on Stellar Quest. Um, I hang out in both of those channels pretty pretty regularly. Um, but then for for everything else, just follow me on on Twitter T Y V D H. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, and um, that's right that's where I talk about all these things. So good place to find me. Well, Tyler, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and really appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise, it's cool. been fun. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening to the Task Podcast and hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to get in touch and have a chat with myself, Matt, or one of the team, then we are at hello at task.io and we'd love to speak to you. Cheers.